I think almost every parent who has a child who has any perfectionistic tendencies at all can relate to the scene where a homework assignment that a teacher may have sent home that the teacher in good faith thought was a 10 or 15 minute assignment can turn into a six hour marathon frustration battle of epic proportions at the kitchen table. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber. My guest this week, Lisa Van Gemmert, also known as the Gifted Guru, is an educator, speaker, former youth and education ambassador for Mensa, and the author of four books, including her most recent book, Perfectionism, A Practical Guide to Managing Never Good Enough. And that's what we're going to be talking about in depth today. Perfectionism, mostly in children, but in adults as well. And while perfectionism might not be a diagnosis per se, it tends to pop up with many atypical kids and especially seems to go hand in hand with giftedness. I hear from so many parents trying to understand their child's meltdown over not being able to complete a task or assignment to the exacting standard they've set for themselves or on the opposite end, feeling defeated before they even begin. And trust me, I have been there as a parent as well. Lisa wrote her book in part from her work with gifted children, but largely from trying to understand her own perfectionism. In our conversation, Lisa goes deep into the research to help us understand what's really going on with perfectionistic tendencies and gives concrete strategies to help our kids and possibly ourselves manage it in a beneficial and positive way. But this episode is also full of all-around great strategies for every parent, whether dealing with perfectionism in some way or not. This was a fascinating conversation with so many great nuggets. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much. And now here is my conversation with Lisa. Hey, Lisa, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Debbie. I'm really excited to be with you today. This is a conversation that I, I've been personally wanting to have, and I hear this from so many parents, this idea of perfectionism, it is pervasive in our twice exceptional kids, our gifted kids, and just differently wired kids in general. So I think this is going to be a super useful conversation. But before we get into that, I always ask guests to just tell me a little bit about, you know, their personal why for doing the work and maybe how you came to be doing this work. Well, unfortunately, I came by it naturally and honestly, (laughs) that I had struggled a lot with my own perfectionistic tendencies. And I had developed a speech that I did about it. And I was giving the speech one time and a man named Jim Webb, who's very well known in the gifted world, who's unfortunately since passed away. He happened to be in a session that I did when I was speaking about perfectionism. And he came up and said, that needs to be a book. You have no idea how many people struggle with this just like you have. And that's how I got started in moving it beyond just looking at how to handle perfectionism in a school environment to looking at perfectionism in a population of Children especially, but in the research I was doing, branched out into adults because it turns out it's way more common in lots of populations than most people realize. Hmm. 
And I love, I just have to say, I I love that Jim Webb is a part of your story. He's a part of the story of a number of guests I've had on this show. And it's just such a testament to the legacy that he leaves behind in in this world. Yes, when he was alive, um, he was my publisher for the book. I do want you to tell us a little bit more about your book. And we'll do that towards the end, your book about perfectionism. But Let's start from the very beginning. Let's talk about even defining perfectionism. Is it different from having high standards or just simply someone who really wants things to be a certain way? So the difficulty with defining perfectionism is that people have different things that they mean by it when they use the term. So some people mean high standards, right? Like, oh, I'm such a perfectionist about my house, meaning that they just like to have things picked up. And then there are other people who, when they say, I'm a perfectionist, mean, and it paralyzes me, right? So in some ways, perfectionism is like anxiety in that way, where a certain amount of anxiety is normal, right? If you have no anxiety, you run out in front of traffic and get hit by a car, but you can have anxiety that does not work for you and paralyzes you. The same thing is true of perfectionism, where everybody has certain tendencies of perfectionism. Like if your doctor gives you medication and says, if you don't take this, you know, your infection isn't going away. You want to be somewhat of a perfectionist in taking that medication. On the other hand, you can have children, especially who get so tied up in their perfectionism that they don't turn in work or they get paralyzed by it. They feel frustrated all the time. It impacts their relationships, right? So One of the difficulties in defining perfectionism is that lots of times people see it as a dichotomy. They see it as you're either a perfectionist or you're not, when the truth is really that it's more of a continuum and that we can be more or less perfectionistic in different areas of our lives and more or less perfectionistic compared to other people. The way that I define perfectionism is unreasonably high standards combined with a lack of self-love. Wow. Can you say a little more about that? I I wasn't expecting self-love to be a part of this equation. And it makes so much sense just even hearing those words. Can you talk a little more about that? Sure. When I was doing the research on the book, and I was reading all of the peer-reviewed journal articles about perfectionism, a lot of them were brushing up against what perfectionism looks like in the DSM. So they were looking at What is perfectionism as it manifests itself in certain mental health conditions for which perfectionism is one of the accepted symptoms or diagnostic criteria? But what they really weren't looking at is what perfectionism looks like on a day-to-day basis for real people. And when I was looking at that in my experience with my own self and in my experience as the youth and education ambassador for Mensa for six years and the thousands of gifted children that I worked with there, And especially because a lot of the children in Mensa, a a disproportionate number of the children in Mensa are twice exceptional. And I think the reason for that is that if you have a gifted child without an exceptionality, you're not necessarily going to seek out the community um, in the way that you do if you have a child who's, who's differently minded. So I saw these tendencies. And what I saw was not just high standards, because a lot of people are capable of accomplishing great things. High standards for themselves is not a problem. It's not perfectionism. It's reasonable. If you have high capability, it's reasonable to have high standards for yourself. 
The problem was when the standards were unreasonable and the person did not love themselves enough to forgive themselves when they were unable to reach those standards. So even if you have unreasonably high standards for yourself, but you're able to do kind of an Elsa frozen, let it go when it doesn't work out, then you're probably not struggling that much when you're really going to struggle is when you have expectations of yourself that you really can't meet and you don't have it in you to forgive yourself for your own humanity. And when you have that combination is when it is dangerous and and can be literally deadly. Hmm. I'm just wondering if you could talk about what this looks like in kids. I know what it looks like in my child, but I'd love to know, you know, how does it actually play out in terms of maybe give us some examples with regards to schoolwork and and how a perfectionistic child might struggle? Well, I think almost every parent who has a child who has any perfectionistic tendencies at all can relate to the scene where a homework assignment that a teacher may have sent home that the teacher in good faith thought was a 10 or 15 minute assignment can turn into a six hour marathon frustration battle of epic proportions at the kitchen table, where a child has an image in their mind of how the work should look, right? Like, oh, I'm making this project, a a poster or brochure, whatever, PowerPoint slide, doesn't matter. They have an idea in their mind of how it should look, how they want it to look, but they're unable to drag it out of their mind and onto paper or a screen in the way that they had envisioned it. And because they can't do that, They become frustrated and frustrated. You'll get tearing of paper, pulling out of hair, yelling, tantruming, even in children who are much older than you would expect a tantrum, where like if other people saw it, they would think, wow, there is something wrong with that kid, right? Why is that 11-year-old literally pounding the floor? And so frustration, I think, is the number one thing that we see, extreme frustration, where they will physically harm themselves or others, and definitely emotionally harm themselves or others, um, where they get angry at adults around them because of their own frustration. The second way I think it manifests itself most commonly is in risk avoidance, where they don't want to do anything unless they can be assured of a perfect outcome before they start. Yeah, I mean, that all resonates that disconnect between the vision, the the six hours for something that a parent might think this could take 10 minutes. Like why, you know, why do you have to care so much about it? And something that I've heard, and I know other parents here is there, there's an unwillingness to do something that isn't at the highest standards of what they believe is possible, right? And so why would I do something that isn't going to demonstrate what I'm capable of. And and that block seems to get in so many people's way. Yes. So there is um, two researchers, Adelson and Wilson, did some work on perfectionism specifically related to what it looks like in students. And one of the things I think was most important about the work that they did was the fact that they categorized perfectionists into different types of perfectionists rather than painting everyone with the same brush. So we're used to the kind of perfectionism where if a kid gets a 98, they want extra credit, right? Like if, 
if I don't get 100, the world as we know it is going to stop spinning on its axis. But there are other ways that it manifests itself. One of those is in risk avoidance. And there is another side of that coin. And what Adelson and Wilson call it is a controlling image manager. And this is really common in a gifted population. So controlling image managers and risk avoiders are very similar in that the motivation is to control the way that one is perceived. Risk avoiders, risk evaders, they avoid anything that will confront their own view of themselves. And that's what you're talking about, where like, I don't want to do it if it doesn't look amazing because I have this standard for myself that I should produce amazing work. And on the other side of that is a controlling image manager who will say, I don't want to do that if I don't think I can do it wonderfully well, because I want to control how other people see me. Like, I don't want to take a chance that somebody will see that I did it and I didn't do it well. And then they will think that kid's not gifted or that kid's not smart or, or even, you know, the absolute worst, right? That kid is so stupid. And so controlling image managers and risk evaders look different on the outside, but the motivation is really the same, which is controlling the way that one is perceived either by oneself or by others. But you also get another type of perfectionist, which is called aggravated accuracy assessors. So these are kids who are fixated on redoing stuff. They'll erase paper until there's a hole in the paper. They just want to redo stuff and redo stuff. And you and I both know, and most adults know that when you make a mistake, you often make it worse when you try to fix it. Like you have a poster and you spell something wrong. When you try to make it look better, you actually draw more attention to it. And so that happens with kids. They start trying to fix it and they make it worse. And then they start circling the drain. So interesting. I love this terminology too, that you're introducing and what you talked about with the the control image manager, the risk avoider, that makes so much sense because I think for a lot of gifted kids, their self-worth, their self-image is really rooted often in their intellect or the abilities that they probably are well aware of, you know, the gifts that they have. And so I can imagine anything that would threaten that would be really scary and uncomfortable. Whenever you are on either side of the traditional bell curve in any quality, right, whether it is height, weight, intelligence, If you are not in the middle, if you're on either extreme, it will become a central facet of your identity. And so this is true of gifted. And it's also true of students with very low IQ. And so whenever we're different from that normal curve bell, the farther away you are from that hump, it will become more and more a part of who you see yourself and who other people see you as. And so that is, I think, speaking to what you're saying. There's one other type of perfectionist that is specifically problematic in this gifted population, and that is procrastinating perfectionists. So they'll put something off for, um, Adelson and Wilson say they put it off because they're concerned that they won't be able to get a really good grade, right? Like they have a complicated relationship with the number zero because they feel like a zero 
for not doing it all is better than an 80 um, if they had done it. But I think that what we often see is that when kids are given tasks that are disrespectful, and by that I mean like busy work, right? Where the kid can see right through that there's no real value in this task. Maybe there actually is value in it, but either the teacher didn't explain the value well or the student maybe just didn't buy into the value of the task. For whatever reason, the student doesn't perceive the task as being worth their time. And so they will procrastinate it so that they can build up the mental energy that they need to do it by letting it be really too late to do it. And so then they have adrenaline and cortisol flowing through their systems because they know they have something that's due the next day that really needed a week or so of time. They don't have enough time. And now they have all of those stress hormones coursing through their bodies. And now that gives them the energy, the mental energy that they need to complete the task. And that's why I think a lot of parents of gifted and twice exceptional kids um, are woken up disproportionately in the night to be told that they need a poster board for the next morning. Right. <laughs> we'll be right back after this quick break. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body. And so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. If you listen to this show, you probably know that at least one in five children is differently wired. But did you know that approximately one in two women will experience hair thinning? If you're part of that 50%, you are absolutely not alone. But because hair thinning for women isn't something people openly talk about, going through it can feel lonely and frustrating. So why not do something about it with Nutrafol? Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster growing hair with less shedding. Everyone's root causes of hair thinning are different, so a one-size-fits-all approach to hair growth isn't going to cut it. Nutrafol has multiple formulas tailored to give your hair what it needs to grow throughout different stages, postpartum, menopause, even for different lifestyles like a plant-based diet. To get your personalized hair health plan based on your specific root causes, you can take a simple hair wellness quiz on Nutrafol.com. And because there's no prescription required, you can quickly get set up online with free shipping and automated deliveries, which make it so much easier to stick with your new hair care routine. See results in three to six months. 
Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code TILT. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com promo code TILT. That's Nutrafol.com promo code TILT. Wow, this is super interesting. So one of the questions I had to ask, which I feel like I now know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway, is are perfectionistic kids born or are they made? So this is a actually complicated question because like almost every other human trait, it's a complex interdependence of both. So I've interviewed probably a dozen neuropsychologists who specialized in this or specialized in other mental health conditions for which perfectionism is one of the key symptoms. And they almost all say that it's impossible to tease it apart because it's almost like the field of epigenetics, right? So where maybe you have perfectionistic tendencies, but your home can make you go either way. And some parents feel guilty because they themselves are perfectionists and they feel that they are creating perfectionistic tendencies in their children. But I've seen many, many homes where a parent's extreme, extreme behavior the other way, where the the parent is almost too laissez-faire, awakens a perfectionistic monster in a child who feels that they have to run the household. And so they're going to control it because there's almost a power vacuum. So What I say to parents is, if you feel that your own perfectionism, your own perfectionistic tendencies are getting in your way, then the best thing you could do to help your child is to try to heal yourself. And then once you have worked on yourself in that way, you'll be able to see more clearly the impact of your attitudes and behavior on your children. But it's very, very, very difficult and very unusual for a parent who's struggling with the exact same thing that the child is struggling with to be able to really get an accurate view of the impact of their attitudes and behavior on their child while they are still themselves in the midst of the pain. Mm -hmm. So the short answer is, is it nature or nurture? Yes. (laughs) Good answer. Yeah. And I'm sure, I mean, I certainly... Both my husband and I are perfectionistic in in certain ways. And, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree with these kids. And so that makes sense. A lot, you know, a lot of my work at Tilt Parenting is really helping parents do their own work so that they can better show up for who their kids are. So I love that that is an important piece of this as well. I wanted to ask you about the way that perfectionism is misunderstood because I can just imagine there are a lot of teachers and and educators and people who interact with perfectionistic kids who don't get it and don't really understand perfectionism. And they may just think a child is being problematic or avoiding demands or, or whatever other reason or lazy or however they're interpreting it. So what are some of the more common misconceptions or misunderstandings about perfectionism? So I think that the two most common misperceptions about perfectionism that impact people the most. There are dozens, but the two that I think are the most problematic 
are, the first one is that people see perfectionism as almost like a disease like cancer, where the only really good outcome is to cure it completely. Like I want to stop being a perfectionist. And in actuality, like I said, it's not a dichotomy. It is a continuum. And so you, you really don't want to not have high standards at all. You don't want to go from being someone who cares very deeply about one's work to being someone who doesn't even show up for work, right? What you're trying to do is manage it. So in that way, it's much more like a condition like type two diabetes, right? That is controllable, something that you may live with, but that you can control and can still live a healthy life. It's not necessarily something that you're trying to rid yourself of. If you completely rid yourself of any quality that you perceive as negative in yourself, you have to accept that the other side of that quality had probably a benefit for you, right? So perfectionists get things done usually, right? Unless they're really, really um, hampered and, and paralyzed by it. But most people who are perfectionistic are the ones that you would go to when you really want something done well. And some perfectionists tend to choose career paths that benefit for them, right? Like, I don't want a neurosurgeon who is just like, you know, if it works, it works, I'll do my best, you know, I'll try, I might be, right? We, we want that, right? Like, you, there are certain areas of our lives where we want to be perfectionistic. And so I think one of the biggest misperceptions is that people walk around feeling badly about themselves because they identify as a perfectionist rather than taking a hard look and in inventory and saying, in what ways does this perfectionism benefit me? And in what ways does it not? And how can I mitigate the way it doesn't benefit me so I can harness the power of it? Because there is power in it. People who have perfectionistic tendencies tend to have stronger task diligence. Um, as again, as long as they're not paralyzed by it. If they can learn to manage it, they can harness it. So that's the the first and biggest misperception, I think, is that people think they have to get rid of it altogether. The second misperception I think that exists is that people who are not perfectionistic sometimes don't understand that some of the things that they say to a perfectionist actually makes things worse. So they can, a teacher might say something to a student like, you know, it, it's fine. Just, just throw something down on the paper. Just turn in something. It doesn't even matter. It, you know, all that matters is that you turn something in. And the perfectionist, those are like shots fired across the bow, right? Like that's, that speaks to their deepest fear. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of times in people who maybe don't struggle with perfectionism themselves don't realize how innate and how tied to personal identity it is and how dangerous it can feel to people to reach out beyond it. And so in some ways, they may not be as sympathetic. And I'm not saying at all that then just because you have perfectionistic tendencies, then you shouldn't have to turn your work in. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that rather than just throwing out platitudes that do not help and often make it much worse, it's way better if people can have a few strategies at hand that are actually useful. 
Well, I'd love to get to some strategies in a minute, but I, I just wanted to touch upon what you said as well, that this isn't about ridding our kids or ourselves of perfectionism. It's about managing it. And that I love that too, because with all kinds of neuro differences, it's about self-awareness, understanding this is the way that my brain is wired. There are strengths that come along with this. And then how do I figure out how to to hack, you know, my own personal system or or way that I move through the world so that I can make this work for me as opposed to holding me back. And I would love then, you know, you mentioned that there are some strategies. So what is the best way to deal with a perfectionistic kid? I mean, let's even just get really specific. Going back to that homework assignment, we see our kids, especially now as we're recording this, our kids are back to school and first couple of weeks are probably done and the homework might be piling up. And now we've got a bunch of classes which might each have different projects and things going on. And we can just as parents see, oh my gosh, we're heading, <laughs> we're heading down a dark path where there's simply not going to be enough hours in the day for all of this work to be completed in the way that my child is going to expect to do it. So how do we support our kids in navigating that? Well, the first and most important answer to this is the least popular answer that I ever give any group of people. And that is that we have to make sure that the child is getting basically the four walls. We need to make sure that we're looking at, are they getting enough and good quality sleep? Are they getting gross motor exercise? Are we managing screen time? And this is so difficult in our current situation where kids might be on screens far more for educational purposes than we would care for. But then we need to even dial back further recreational use of screens. And then are they eating well? So those four things have to be in place. If they're not, it won't matter what else you do. It won't matter any little strategy I can share, and I'm going to share specific strategies. But the fact is, is that if those four walls are not in place, it won't matter what furniture you put in the house. You'll just be rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. And the, and all four of them are really important. But I think that the two that parents often overlook is gross motor exercise outside and how important that is to child development. And then also the quality of sleep. So um, those are two things and, and they can be impacted very much by parent behavior. So all four of those things are essential for child, a child's well-being, and they are all dependent upon good parenting. We'll be right back after this quick break. So in our house these days, Darren and I have been working together to uplevel our nutrition and healthy lifestyle habits. Maybe it's our age, our changing bodies, my shifting hormones, whatever the reason, I'm here for it. And that's why I'm loving Green Chef, a meal company that makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. Green Chef offers gut-friendly recipes each week and is committed to providing a holistic approach to nutrition by offering meals that contribute to the overall well-being of your entire body. Darren and I are particularly big fans of their nutrient-dense, science-backed gut and brain health recipes, developed in partnership with registered dietitians that improve digestion, reduce bloat, and also boost energy and immunity. This week's favorites, turkey, black bean, and sweet potato chili, and the Baja chicken bowls with mango salsa. I mean, don't those sound delicious? 
But if that's not your thing, you can choose from a variety of customized meals to suit your lifestyles with preferences like keto, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, gluten-free, and protein-packed. Whatever you choose, you'll get farm-fresh ingredients, organic whole fruits and veggies, and premium proteins, along with chef-crafted, nutritionist-approved recipes delivered straight to your door. Go to greenchef.com slash 60tilt and use code 60tilt to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's 60% off plus 20% off your next two months when you use the code 60tilt at greenchef.com slash 60tilt. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. I'm on the road this month and oh man, am I missing my sweet kitties, Haskell and Lua. They've been a part of our family for more than two years and I'm so grateful they're keeping Darren such good company while I'm away. If you're getting a new pet soon, you're probably already thinking about everything you'll need to buy. Food, toys, a cozy bed, doggy bags or litter boxes. Something you may not be thinking about though is pet insurance. That's why you should check out ASPCA Pet Health Insurance. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years, and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. They allow you to customize your plan, helping ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are, because vet bills can really add up, especially when you're least expecting it. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. So um, once you've got that in place, then some of the strategies that I think are really useful are um, if you have a child for whom, let's take that homework battle that, that you brought up and that we discussed earlier. When a child comes home with homework and you and you have a situation, you, you like you know that this is an ongoing problem. I think it's important for there to be good communication between the parent and the teacher about what is being expected. So I recommend to teachers and I as a teacher do this where I put the amount of time on each assignment that I think that assignment should take. So if a teacher has said, you know, this is a 20 minute assignment. Then the parent can look it over briefly. And I think this is a step that a lot of times parents don't look at what the child's being expected to do until the child's in a meltdown. And by then, they're not ready to listen. They can't hear anything anymore. There's a definite connection between level of frustration and auditory processing. So the more frustrated you get, there's an inverse relationship to how well you hear. So if a parent will take a glance at the work and get a feel for what's being expected and then have before it all lights up on fire, right? We don't need to wait till the kid gets to DEFCON 1. We can say, oh, okay, it looks like you're being expected to do X, Y, Z. Is that how you see it? And then the child says either yes or no. And then the parent can ask questions. Ask rather than tell kids. Rather than saying to kids, so this says it should only take you 20 minutes, so you've got 20 minutes. Or this says such and such, you should do it this way, rather than that, 
asking kids questions like, do you feel that you can do it in that amount of time? Or do you have the supplies that you need? Do you feel like this is something you want to do like in quiet in your room? Or do you want to work at the table with me? Do you want to snack for it? Like asking kids some questions first and getting them to a position of empowerment of themselves and making them feel that they have some control, that they have some autonomy over what they're facing. And then asking, like, do you feel confident that you know how to do this before they get into the mess, right? So all too often, we wait until the kid is tied up in knots. And then we're trying to unravel that knot. But in fact, a little bit of preventative medicine could have gone a long way. The strategy that I use with this also is probably my favorite strategy, which is rating things on a scale of one to five. So a one is just like it needs to be done, but it doesn't really matter how well it's done. Like, for instance, if you're taking out the trash it, ju- it needs to be done, definitely, unless you want to show up on a TV show, but you, you want to take out the trash. But does it really need to be done well? And what does that mean? And I think as a society, unfortunately, we have this very common saying, everybody knows this saying, anything worth doing is worth doing. And everybody listening to this podcast can fill in that last word, right? Mm-hmm. Anything worth doing is worth doing well. But I don't think that's true. I don't think that anything worth doing is worth doing well. I think a lot of things that are worth doing are just worth a lick and a promise. That's what my grandma used to call it. And so if you're going to take out the trash, just take it out, right? You don't need the can perpendicular to the curb, but you don't need to tie the little red string in a perfect bow or whatever, right? And so that's a one. A one is just something that needs to get done, but it, it isn't necessary. It doesn't need to show up on Pinterest. A five is where something life or death is at stake, right? That's a five. A five is life or death. Now, the problem is perfectionists see everything as a five. They want to die on every hill. When in reality, most things are about a three. And so one of the things that we can do as parents and teachers and and grandparents and friends, anybody interacting with a child or even an adult who struggles with this is to have that become part of our conversation, right? So this looks like this assignment's like a two. Do you feel like it's a two, right? Or even like cleaning your room, right? So maybe normally the cleaning of a child's bedroom is in my mind, a three, but some kids see it as a one and the parent might see it as a five. And then when you have, when you have a disconnect between the level that one person perceives something and the level that someone else involved in that thing perceives it, that's when you're going to have conflict. And it may be that you say, you know, normally cleaning your room is like a two or a three, but grandma's coming. And so it's a four, right? So when we can bring in that kind of language and vocabulary, it's a very, very, very helpful strategy. It actually works with emotional stuff as well. So I developed the strategy to be used with perfectionism, but it turns out after I had somebody read the book who contacted me and said that they have a child who's bipolar and that that one through five strategy helped with managing emotion as well. Like this incident, what does it feel like to you? And then what are you treating it like? Mm -hmm. And, And that's one of the activities that I suggest is going through some of the common things that the child experiences and participates in in their life and asking them to rate it on a scale of one to five of how they treat it, and then consider on a scale of one to five, how do other people perceive that activity? 
And if there's a disconnect, if there's a difference between those two levels that you think it is and other people think it is, would it benefit you to move closer to the way that other people perceive it? When we send these things as invitations, as lures, rather than pushes, it's more. These are such great strategies. I love that they're empowering. I love that they're promoting self-awareness, especially this rating scale. It it does remind me of, you know, what we would look at with emotional regulation. You know, where are you on this? Where What are you feeling right now? But this is all so good for our kids to understand how they show up. So one question about that, as we build their awareness or as they start to really understand that, wow, I tend to treat things like a five and actually I'm learning that this is really a three. What does that actually look like? Can these kids learn to let go? And what does that process look like for a typical, a typical atypical student, if you will? Sure. So it, it lends itself to a discussion, right? So I suggest to teachers that they put on the assignment, just like I said, they should put a suggested amount of time. I su- I suggest that they put a suggested level, right? So this is a three slash 20, meaning it's a level three assignment and it's worth 20 minutes of human life, or it's a level two or it's a level four. To me, there's nothing at school that's a level five. Mm-hmm. There's nothing at school that's a level five. The only exception to that is an outcry. Um, when a student makes an outcry to a teacher, that's a five. But other than that, everything at school, the highest it ever gets is four. So what it looks like in real life when you're working with it is you have a kid who comes home, they have an assignment, or maybe they did it online, you know, whatever their schooling situation is, and they have something that they're working on, then you you see them working on it. And if everything's fine, everything's fine, right? But as the first sign of trouble, What often happens, which is that we see the child start to go, right? We we see the signs, we see their physical manifestations of their frustration. And if anybody has not read the book, The Body Keeps the Score, they definitely must read this book because it really goes into the way that our bodies physically manifest a lot of emotion and, and it can help you in reading other people, but and especially children. So when I see the signs that my child's starting to get frustrated, and I have a lot of parenting experience myself. I have raised three of my own children. I've had two foreign exchange students and 12 foster children, in -hmm. addition to the thousands of children that I've taught in school. And every single kid I've had living in my home has had a different way that they manifested when their stress was starting to rise. Some of them chewed pencils, some of them twisted hair, some of them had habits I won't even discuss, (laughs) discuss, but they had crazy habits. And then once I start to see that, the first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to intervene early. I'm just going to say, so what are you working on? Oh, what level is it? Like, what level do you think this is? And what does that look like when it's done? Right? So one of the difficulties is the kids have to understand that a level two activity for school looks different than a level three or a level four right? We maybe don't need to redo it to correct a mistake. Maybe it's fine to put a line through it and write above. Maybe it's okay if there's some more racing or a splotch or if water got spilled on it or if there's a a typo or maybe if one or two of the problems are wrong, it may not, like if you're doing something that's just for practice, getting some of them wrong is actually part of the practice. That's why it's a two. If it's a test, 
then that's a four. And then it's worth the time to correct the mistake. So some of this is going to depend on the kind of assignments that your child is doing. One of the things that you can do if you feel like your child is struggling with this is to ask the teacher to share examples of what different levels of them look like. So one of the problems is, is a lot of times in school, teachers are giving examples and the examples are all the best ones, right? So some kid the year before turned in this amazing poster. And so that's the one that the teacher shows Mm -hmm. as the example. Mm -hmm. And I actually feel like that infuses the classroom with the flavor of perfectionism, Mm -hmm. right? Like that, what was amazing last year now becomes the standard. And I think that's dangerous. So I think one of the things that's very helpful is if you can ask the teacher, like, could you show what does an A look like? What does a B look like? What does a C look like? Can the teacher just take a little picture and put it in Google Drive of what they want the homework to look like? Because one of the problems, and this is where we get a lot of contention between parents and children, is that the child is telling the parent that the parent doesn't understand the direction that the teacher gave in the class. And So the child gets very frustrated because the parent is looking at the thing going, this isn't that big of a deal. Like, why are we having this big battle? Why are we at DEFCON 1? But the kid is like, you don't get it. You don't understand. You don't know. Right. And they're worried about what's going on with the teacher. And so a lot of this depends on really good open communication between the parent and the teacher in the sense of what are your expectations? How well do you want this done? Because my kid is acting like this is being turned in for an Academy Award Mm -hmm. (laughs) when you think it's just a home video, right? So we have to make sure we're on the same page in real ways, but we also have to make sure that our children understand for themselves, like what's the standard that's being asked of you in this circumstance and what does that really look like? One of the opportunities that parents have, I think, to make this happen is to work with children. So one of the dynamics I think that is natural but can cause problems is a lot of times while kids are working on their work and they're sitting like at a desk or at the kitchen table or wherever they're working and the parent is doing their own stuff all around. And so we're just kind of checking in every now and then. And we may miss those early warning signs. But not only that, If if the child is struggling, I'm not saying that everybody needs to do this, but if this is a struggle for a child, my strong recommendation is that parents, while children are trying to do homework, my strong recommendation is that parents find something of their own that they can do alongside the child. So if you have letters to write, if you journal, if you have a, a scripture study habit, if you are taking a class yourself, if you need to return email. Go sit next to the child and do your work alongside them. The reason that I recommend this is because it's very difficult. And this is true of adults as well. It's very difficult when you're in the middle of doing something and you're getting frustrated with it. And somebody who's not doing it just comes in out of nowhere, like out of the clear blue. They come in and they want to like tell you what you're doing wrong or why you shouldn't be frustrated. There's nothing more frustrating than that. Mm -hmm. But if you're sitting right next to each other, not only will you see the early warning signs, but you're more likely to be having kind of natural conversation about it. And so some of these things can be addressed before they become a problem because you're right there. Now, I'm not saying that every parent in America or the world 
needs to do homework at the table with their kid. But what I'm saying is, if you know that this is a struggle for your child, try it. This is just so helpful. And and you have so much wisdom to share on this. And I would love for you to just take a minute and tell us about your book. You wrote a book called Perfectionism, A Practical Guide to Managing Never Good Enough. And tell us about that for a minute and any other resources that you suggest parents who want to explore perfectionism and their kids further should check out. So as I mentioned in the beginning, I did this session on perfectionism and Jim Webb was like, oh, that needs to be a book. And so I wrote a book called Perfectionism. Right? And in the book, I I read all of the research that exists on perfectionism and then tried to distill it into practical strategies. So there's a lot of what we've talked about today, but obviously more in depth and lots more strategies. So every chapter has information, but then it also has activities, takeaways, and things to consider trying. And there will be something for everyone because not every one of these strategies will work for everyone. But in the book, you can definitely find whatever type of perfectionism your child is struggling with or you yourself are struggling with. You'll be able to find suggestions for that. In addition to that, it also gives, if you're a parent, the book has lots of different tips for teachers. And so what's helpful about that is that if you have a child who, whether informally is struggling or formally and has like an IEP or a 504, either way, you're going to find some strategies that you can suggest to the teacher or in a IEP or 504 meeting that you would like as an accommodation. So I think it's reasonable and fair to ask a teacher to share with you how much time they think an assignment will take. One of the things that I suggest in the book actually is, is if you have a child who's really struggling, who's paralyzed by this perfectionism, is to ask the teacher to accept work that is what the child was able to accomplish in 20 minutes. So even if it isn't done, they only have to work on it for 20 minutes. And then they turn that in. And then as they keep doing that, as they realize, okay, I'm not going to have to sit here for two hours, that they can dial back into it. So if people want more suggestions on it, more ideas, more information on the website, on the Gifted Guru website, I have a lot of things tagged with perfectionism. I write about it quite a bit. And so you can search on the website. It'll pull up all of the articles on perfectionism. And I've talked about perfectionism. You can listen to that and um, also find the book there, you know, on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or wherever books are, but there's lots for free on the Gifted Guru website. Fantastic. And listeners, I will include links to Lisa's website, her book and the other resources we talked about. I'll try to get some links for some of the research as well, all on the show notes pages. So Lisa, thank you again. You spent a little extra time with us today. And I'm so grateful. This is such a rich conversation. And I really appreciate all the time you took with us today. Thank you. It's been a true pleasure. I hope that I did a reasonably acceptable job, like a level three. (laughs) You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, where you can download the transcript, find links to Lisa's website, The Gifted Guru, her book, Perfectionism, and all the other resources we discussed, visit tiltparenting.com slash session 229. 
If you get a lot out of this podcast and would like to help me cover the cost of its production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. On Patreon, you can sign up to make a small monthly contribution, as little as $2 a month, to support the show. Just go to patreon.com slash tiltparenting. Lastly, this is my weekly pitch to ask you to help this podcast stay visible and easily found by subscribing and leaving a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for considering. And that's all for this week. Stay safe, stay well, and take good care. And for more information on Tilt Parenting, visit www.tiltparenting.com. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory. Two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And this is our new podcast, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. What happens when your creative spark just seems to disappear? Gone. Poof. Bye. See ya. What happens when life gets in the way of your creativity instead of nourishing it? That's what happened to Molly and me. We felt like the thing that drove us creatively stopped working and impending doom had in fact invented. Totally. So we decided to do something about it. And that was steal ideas about getting unstuck from the most creative people we can find. We talk to guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. And we're not just talking Bob Ross type paint on paper artists here, though we talk to them too. We're talking to actors, creative directors, dancers, and people who are working hard to be their best creative selves in a world that can sometimes feel real uncreative. We all have something to teach each other, so let's steal their ideas together. Join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Pandemics, school calendars, world events, lack of sleep, oh, get out of their life gunk. And let's get back to your best creative self. Subscribe to Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. You're not going to want to miss an episode. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking